If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead, you can take those out, and you can turn with me to um, the book of Acts, the second chapter, and so we're in same text that we were in last week. We're going to look at it again. It's fantastic to see you this morning. It's good to see one another, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm just going to pretend there's smiles on behind those masks. I told Pastor Derek that we actually um, will have two, two sermons will be preached from the pulpit today. Um, I will be preaching one, and uh, the Apostle Peter would be preaching the other as we were going to be reading his sermon that was given on the day of Pentecost. And uh, Pastor Derek said, well, Peter's will be better. Um, he's, he's right. It's true. Okay, if, you, um, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, Acts chapter 2 could be found on page 909. And this is such a, it's such a key text for us. Um, it is, as we're going to look at um, today, we looked at last week, it is the coming, the sending of the Spirit, the de- descending of the Spirit, coming into in order to birth the church. And so this is our, this is our birthday. This is why we are gathering here some thousands of years later, still doing what we see happening here. The Spirit's among us. He's with us. We believe that by faith. We're going to preach and proclaim Jesus. We're going to give an opportunity for people to respond to, to Jesus today with repentance, even possibly even setting up baptism. We're going to look at the church as it's described, the church in Jerusalem as it was described, um, as an example for how we are to live as the church as well. Okay, we got 47 verses. Let's do it. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Uh, Part. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the 11, he lifted up his voice and he addressed them and said, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. 
And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. Thank you. Verse number 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God had raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Amen. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me and he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make, my, my, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I, say, I may say to you with confidence, about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of, of that we are we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself, he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for those who are far off, every, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they vote, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending to the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that by your power, 
by you superintending over the centuries we had preserved for us the events of the day of Pentecost, that we believe them with faith, that we believe that this is a trustworthy and true words that we're reading about. And you preserved it as, an, as a declaration of the age of the church that is here, a church that would be marked by worship of you and by right preaching and teaching of you and by right fellowship by a unity that we're gonna talk about today and by a love. And so Jesus, may you just come and be among us and in your spirit be among us and just help us to understand all that you would have for us today. Even in this day, in the difficult days that are in front of us and we're in the midst of, strengthen us and enable us to persevere. In your name we pray, amen. Now, First of all, I said this last week, that the day of Pentecost isn't as much about a personal experience with the Spirit, as much as what it's declaring the, the church to be. It's really coming to the church corporately rather than just upon individuals. And the day of Pentecost isn't necessarily just something unique that's occurring here. Like what we're reading here, it has a, it has a past aspect, aspect to it. It has a present as we look at what's happening here as it's recorded in Acts chapter two. And it also has a future aspect to it. And so even though there could be some uniqueness that we see in it with like the speaking of tongues and the descending of the spirit, but yet as we're studying the storyline of the Bible, it's rooted in the past and we see it in the present. And it's also pointing us forward even into the future. And so the past aspect of it, we could look at that in two different ways. The first past aspect is, is what's happening here is an undoing of what we saw happening in Genesis, the 11th chapter. If we were to look at Genesis, the 11th chapter, what you'll see is, you'll see the event known as the Tower of Babel. Mankind gets together and they and their pride say, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna build a tower that will ascend into heaven. That's a stairway of heaven, literally. They're building a the stairway to heaven. And why they say that is it's, it's out of their pride. We're gonna be gods of our own. It's the same sin that was found in Adam and Eve in the garden. Mankind post the fall or post Noah, post all of the flood, we still see the same problem in man. And that problem is pride. They wanna be their own gods. And that's what he's saying. We'll, we'll ascend to, to deity. We'll be our own gods. And so they begin building this tower and God brings judgment upon those people. And that judgment comes in the form of a punishment. And that punishment is his, he confuses the languages. All of a sudden, they can no longer work in cooperation with one another because they're no longer speaking the same language. And so what we see happening in Genesis chapter 11 is God is, God is scattering the people because that's what happens afterward is they begin to gather up according to their language. And as they gather up according to their language, they're speaking different languages. And what we see is God is scattering his people in judgment. And now what we see on the day of Pentecost is we see the opposite, the undoing of that. What God is doing is God is gathering together his people for worship and he's using the same, the same thing. In Genesis chapter 11, he brings judgment that is confusion of the languages. In on the day of Pentecost, what he's doing is giving a foreshadowing of heaven by bringing together a unity, a common commonality of the languages where they're all speaking a language and they're all hearing in the same language. It also has a past aspect as what it points to of the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost, as we said last week, is a Jewish festival. It is a festival in which they are, they are um, celebrating the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And now what we have here is we have the first fruits of the harvest of souls, the first fruits of the church 
coming together. These are these 3,000 plus the 120. They are the first members of Jesus's church. We'll put a pin in that and we'll come back to that. It has a present aspect as well as what we're seeing happening here in Acts chapter two. But this begins the age that you and I are currently in. We are in the age of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is here at work among us, gathering together the church. And this is the age of the church that we're in. They were in the same age. But it also gives a picture of the future aspect. Just as what's happening here in Acts chapter 2 is the first fruits of the harvest, there will be a final harvest made when Christ returns, when, a, when the Feast of Trumpets, when a trumpet blasts and all who are born again, all who are saved are, are gathered in as a, and the church is gathered around even the throne room of God. And it's in the throne room of God where Jesus will be uh, seated. And it's in that throne room that some from every tribe, some from every nation, some from every tongue, Acts chapter two, right? Genesis chapter 11, all from some, some from every tribe, nation, and tongue will all come together. And with one voice, that means with one language, they will lift up and they will sing Hosanna and praise to Jesus. They'll say salvation belongs to Jesus and to Jesus alone. Actually, they will say salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, all in the same language. And so what we see here is not unique, but what we see here is a fulfilling of promises, certain promises that have been made. And again, a past, a present, and even a future. That's where we're all heading as the church, that someday we will be gathered beneath Jesus's throne, singing praises to him. The day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 it gives us, as I said, there's two events. There is the spirit coming and there is the church being born, the church being birthed, if you will. And so let's define who is the church. The church is this. The church is the blood-bought people of God who by the power of the spirit believe and rightly respond to the gospel. And that's what we see happening after Peter's sermon in their response they are the blood-bought people of Christ that Jesus has purchased them by his blood. And how do we know who those individuals are? Well, they are believing and they're rightly responding to the gospel. And we could say even far more than that. They will be persevere, they'll persevere in their faith until the end. But let's pick up and we'll say this, three aspects. Actually, I'll say this, you'll listen to this. Three aspects about the church. Three things that I want to point out about the truth, about the church, three truths about the church. They'll sound familiar because they are um, three of our four identities. And so they're written here on the, on the banners that are um, in front of you. And so this text, Acts chapter 2, verses uh, 42 through 47, is kind of where we derive that place and other places in the, in the New Testament, where we get our identities from. And so three of them, I'm going to talk a little bit about three of our identities. The first one is that they were united as family. They were united as family. That what we see happening here is the spirit is fusing them together as one. That what Luke records in uh, Acts chapter two is he says that all the disciples, there's about 120 men and women, they're all together in one place. They're in one place, they're in one location, but then as the spirit comes and the spirit moves, then what you're going to see is now, not only are they in one location, but they're going to be one in heart. They're going to be one in spirit. They're each are going to experience this miracle and phenomenon together. 
Each is gonna hear the wind. Each is gonna see an individual tongue of fire on over each one's head. It shows that it happened to all of them. That the baptism of the Spirit, that's what is being described here in Acts chapter two, it unifies the church. It brings unity to the church. This isn't an experience for the spiritually elite among them. Some people believe that about the baptism of the Spirit, that it's somehow for the spiritually elite, but that's not what we see happening here. It's happening to all of them. Every believer is being baptized into the Spirit here in the beginning of Acts chapter two. As I said, they're in one location. Possibly, probably, maybe even, this is the same location where they gathered together with Jesus at the end of John's gospel. Uh, He covers this. It's called the upper room discourse. When we were in John, we talked several weeks over that. So John chapter 17, Jesus comes in, again, probably in the same place, and Jesus is gonna pray a prayer. His prayer is a prayer of unity. In this short text of scripture, Jesus is going to pray Just some 53, probably 53 days ago, Jesus will pray four times that his disciples, his people, his church will be united as one. He will say, I want them to be one just as we are one, speaking to the Father. The unity that Jesus prayed for 53 days ago is being fulfilled as the Spirit comes. It's being fulfilled on the day of Pentecost as the Spirit comes and baptizes and immerses the believers. Jesus' prayer is being answered. We are one. That's the reality of us as a church. We are one. We are united. We may not always act like it, but we are one. We are one because we've all been immersed by the Holy Spirit, and we are completely indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So we share a common life as one body. We are one living organism, Jesus' body. We have a shared life together. Our life is all together in Christ. Paul says this in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, the first five verses. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now remember, church means just that called out ones. And he's saying, I want you to walk worthy. I want you to walk in a way in congruence to your calling as you've been called out of the world. But look at verse number two. How are we to walk then? We'll walk in this way with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. We'll get back to that. What a great word for us. We're eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Do you see that? The spirit is uniting us and we are bound together, glued together, fused together by peace, a bond of peace. Verse number four, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Ooh, that's good. We need to hear that. I mean, we absolutely, we need to hear this. Like I'm gonna talk three points. My last point, I'm just gonna read. The second point, we're gonna skim over. And this is the point that I think we need to grab a hold of as a church the most right now, both as a church universally and as a church locally, the Point Community Church. Because we live in such divided, right? Such divided times as we're living in right now. First of all, you need to know this. Our unity is theological. It is a theological truth. 
Positionally, that's what, that's what is happening here. Positionally, you and I, we are united as one. That unity isn't something that you and I need to work for. Unity isn't something that you and I need to accomplish. What you and I need to do is we need to maintain the spiritual reality of our unity as it's been declared by Jesus, prayed for by Jesus, and made active by the giving of the Holy Spirit. That when you were born again, regenerate, baptized in the spirit, you were baptized and born into the church of Jesus Christ as his people, as his family. That you give evidence to that by belonging, membership into a local body, joining with and doing life with a local body. You've been united. We have, we each and every one of us, we have been united by two things. We are not united in our political affiliations. We are not united in the outlook of the way that we see and understand the coronavirus. We are not, uh, I could go on, right? We're not united by sports affiliation. Some of you worship the devil, right? Louisville, Cardinal. No, I'm joking. We're not united by those things. We're not united by, I could keep going and going and going. So what is it that unites us? Because the reality is you have more in common with your Republican, Democrats in the room, you should have more in common with your Republican brother who is in Christ than your Democratic pagan friends. That's the reality and vice versa. We should have more in common as a church because what is it that has united us? Well, two things. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed for his church to purchase his church out of their sin and out of the world and away from death. And it is secondarily, it is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that unites us. Our job, even though it's, it's theological, our job is to make that a reality. In fact, the day of Pentecost gives us a picture of that. In Leviticus 23, whenever Moses is going over what the day of Pentecost, God's given this is divine revelation that God has made known unto Moses and Moses is sharing it in the book of Leviticus with the priestly order and with the people and he's talking about the different feasts. And so there is the first feast, it's the feast of Passover. And in the Feast of Passover in Leviticus 23, there is an offering that the people are to offer. And the offering that they are to offer is the offering of unleavened bread. During Passover, they're to give unleavened bread. And as Paul has said, Jesus is our Passover. That what Passover points to is Jesus's death and then the next day, Jesus' resurrection, that Jesus, the, the, even the offering of, of the Passover unleavened bread, it, it represents Jesus, that Jesus is the Passover bread. Leaven in the Bible, it's the same thing as yeast, and what leaven all throughout the Bible represents is sin. And what he's pointing to is Jesus is the offering being made on Passover who is sinless without sin. That's Jesus. 50 days later, there is the next festival and it's the festival of, uh, of unleavened bread. And the offering offered in the, in, um, I'm sorry, the offering being offered during the day of Pentecost, that's what's 50 days later, is the, is the day of Pentecost, the next festival. And the offering being offered here by the people is two loaves of leavened bread. There's two loaves coming up of leavened bread. And I really think that this symbolizes a couple of things about the church. I think we are that offering being offered on the day of Pentecost. I think the first truth is it's leavened bread, not unleavened bread. It's a declaration that there's sin in the church, and there is, and there will be until the final harvest. Again, day of Pentecost is first fruits harvest. It's not final harvest. 
It's a picture of the reality that you and I, we are living sacrifices, as Paul says in Romans, the 12th chapter. We're not dead yet, but we're living. We're alive and we sin. And that's a reality of it. But second of all, I think the fact that it is bread being baked together, it symbolizes our unity. The offering is not loosely gathered sheaves of wheat. It's not a handful of grain, but it's a whole loaf wherein there is real union of the particles in a common unit, in a common body, in a common loaf, in a common piece of bread, loaf of bread that is being offered. And that's us as the church. He's not saving a group of individuals. And that's hard for us as Americans because we have such individualistic mentalities. We pride our individualism. But what he's doing is he's, he's saving a body, a bride, singular, made up of many people, made up of many, many instruments, many parts and pieces. But notice this body, it is a family. It's not an organization, but it is a family. And how do we know that it's a family? Well, again, the Spirit teaches us this. It's the Spirit that unifies and symbolizes our unity together. Paul says in Romans the eighth chapter that you and I, that we receive the Spirit and it is the Spirit of adoption. Now, it's the same thing that's happening here on the day of Pentecost. It's the Spirit that's being poured out. This capital S, as Paul will use in Romans 8 chapter, he's not talking about your spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. You and I, we receive the spirit and the spirit that we receive is the spirit of adoption by with which, Paul says, we cry out, Abba, Father. So those of you that are believers in the room, you get the spirit and you get the spirit and you get the spirit and you get the spirit, right? I feel like Oprah, you get a car and you get a car and you car. You get the spirit and you get the spirit, you get the spirit. You're, I get the spirit and each one of us individually, we're crying out with the same spirit, the same spirit of adoption, where each and every one of us are crying out, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. What does that mean if we're all crying out, right? I get, I get three kids, uh, Kennedy, Grayson, Safira. They all three call me daddy. Why? Because they're all my kids, right? They're all my children. They're all in my family. And the same thing is true for us. The Spirit draws us together in, in unity as you and I are adopted into the family of God. And with the Holy Spirit, you and I are crying out, Abba, Father. Our unity, even though it is theological and positional, our unity is to be maintained as a reality. It's not just to be left as a theological idea on a page in the Bible, but you and I, the challenge for us is to live, is to maintain, as Paul says, to maintain the, re the reality of our unity. We need to do that practically and pragmatically. How do we do that? Well, I think Ephesians, the fourth chapter, the second and third verses, I think it's a great picture of that. How do we maintain this bond of peace among us? How do we maintain this unity? Well, look, we do it with humility. We do it with gentleness. We need to be patient with one another. We need to bear with one another in love. I love that picture. Sometimes you're just bearing with me in love. Like I'm, I'm putting up with that joker that's our pastor and I'm gonna love him to the end. That's sometimes what you gotta do, right? We do that with one another. Look at it, eager. It's a great word. We're eager. We're waiting. We're eager to, to, to not zap each other on social media. That's not our eagerness to point out flaws and problems with each other. 
with our political ideologies, with our theologies, with all of those things. We're not eager for that, but what are we eager for, Paul? Paul says we're eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. Now listen, I would never, ever, ever tell you not to post political posts on your social media. It's your social media. It's, you, it's your account. It's got your name on it. You set it up. It belongs to you. I would never do that because that would be legalism. And I would never do that. But my job is to say, listen to what this scripture dictates. That what, as you make your post, what you should say is, will this maintain a bond of unity in the church? Or will this work to cause divisions and factions and disunity in the church? Well, I'm not making it for the church. Yeah, but you got folks who are in the church that follow you. I think it's just wisdom. I think that's what the question, I think that's what Paul's saying. Let this truth become a reality as this truth of the unity of the church, as it governs your souls. That's what he's saying. Let it govern you. Let this reality govern you. But it's not just, look, it's not just a work of the flesh. It's also a work of love. See, you'll be willing to do it if you really love other people. If you're really in love with these people as your brothers and sisters in Christ, more than you're in love with your political affiliation, more than you're in love with possibly your sports team, more than you're in love with whatever else, your take, current take on the coronavirus or whatever it may be, let what governs you, let love be what governs you. Paul writes in Romans, the fifth chapter and the fifth verse, one of my favorite texts of scripture, What he says is, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. So picture this, as the Spirit comes, as you're being baptized into the Spirit, the Spirit works in order to make God's love for you a reality. The Spirit is at work and comes and is shed abroad poured out into your heart for two things, for two purposes. Number one, he wants to make God's love for you a reality in your life. And the second thing the Holy Spirit is empowering and working is God's love for others. It's God's love for you. You come to understand God's love, that God does love me. Like that's the work of the Spirit. He really does. I'm not condemned, you know, Romans the eighth chapter. There's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's not angry with me. He's not mad with me. He's not displeased with me, but God genuinely really does love me. How do you come to that understanding? What's the Spirit that does that? He makes the love of God shed abroad, poured out into your heart. But second, not just God's love for you, but it's God's love through you. And in order to understand that, let's read the whole book of 1 John because that's what it deals with. That's, the, that's what the whole book of 1 John and most of the New Testament deals with. What John will say is it's absolutely impossible for you to understand God's love for you and you not let God's love come through you to others. The Spirit is doing that. And really that's what we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. We see a description of the church. And what we see is that we see their love and their unity is being evidenced practically in their fellowship. Now, fellowship is one of those church words that we use when we throw around. It's food, fun, and fellowship. Join us tonight. 
Join us this afternoon at 2.45 because men and, and some of the ladies, if you wanna come, we're gonna pack all these pews out here and we're gonna have some food, fun, and fellowship. Actually, we're gonna have none of that. We're just gonna have hard work. I'm fibbing. But we use those terms often. Food, fun, and fellowship. And fellowship is just thought of as a meal after the gathering where our Sunday, sometimes before coronavirus, we used to meet in the back parking lot. We'd have meals, dinner on the grounds. We'd be like, hey, join us for the fellowship. But really the word fellowship is so much more rich and understanding in Acts chapter two than just a meal after the gathering. That fellowship means shared life. It's the Greek word koinonia, and that's what we see happening here. We see people who are practicing hospitality. I said this a few weeks ago. Hospitality, I think, is one of the lowest forms of biblical love. That as we read Acts chapter two, verses 42 through 47, what we see is we see a church that's gathering together. They're breaking bread in people's homes. They're praying together in people's homes. They're studying God's word together in people's homes. And so somebody's got to give up their house for that. Somebody's got to say, you know what? It's not a huge inconvenience for me to open up my home to you. And I'm inviting you into uh, this home. Let's eat a meal together. And then let's open up God's word together. And let's, uh, you know, let's share in prayer together. Let's do that. They're doing that. It's a practice of hospitality. It's the idea of opening up their homes to one another. So there is the lowest form. It doesn't take a lot. Now, some of you, I know, I get it. You're introverts. I get that. Some of you are closed homes. That's the way you grow up. I get that. But let me just say this statement. It really doesn't take a ton of sacrifice to open up your home to another person. It really doesn't even take that much sacrifice to open up your home to a person who may need it for a couple of nights. I mean, really, that's the picture. There's, that's the idea of hospitality. It's tr- people that are traveling through and don't, need a, don't have a home. And so you open up your home and you say, hey, come stay, come crash, come sleep on my couch or sleep in my guest room or whatever it may be that you have. But really, honestly, that's not a huge sacrifice. But then there's a greater sacrifice we see being described here. Not only do they practice hospitality, but they practice generosity. Now that's not the highest form of love. The highest form of love would be self-sacrifice. You know, greatest love that we can show to somebody is to lay down our lives for that person. But there is a greater form of of sacrifice being offered in generosity. Notice what it says. It says that there are people, get this, check this out. There are people who are selling their stuff because there are people in their family who are without need. So they're going around, they're looking at, you know what? I don't know that I need this, whatever that may be. I don't really know that I need seven guns. Maybe I can make it with six. And so I'm gonna sell this gun and then I'm not gonna use that to buy two more guns. But what I'm gonna use that for is I'm gonna use that in order to help somebody else who's in need. I'm gonna fund the benevolence ministry of the church because there's all these people out here who's in need. And that's what's happening here. They're selling their possessions. They're not living in a commune. It's not like that. It's not communism. It's just saying like, hey, we recognize there may be people in need and we want to be the ones that want to meet that need. And so how can we live generously? And so really you've got this low form of love in hospitality and you've got this high form of love in generosity. And I think what the picture is saying is, is everything in between that is needed. They're doing it. And how are they doing it? What's the spirit that's empowering that? Because they've been changed by the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit made God's love shed abroad in their hearts on the day of Pentecost, on the day when you were saved. Underneath all of this isn't the flesh. It isn't law. It isn't being conjoled by by Peter into doing this. Underneath it all is they have glad and generous hearts. 
It's not a burden to live like that if you have a glad and generous heart. And what happens, again, when you receive the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit regenerated you, regeneration is a change of disposition. That's what the Holy Spirit lives to do. Your heart isn't just the things that you love, but your heart is the very control center of your life. Your heart feeds everything. All of your decisions are being made by your heart. And that's our problem is our hearts, per per the fall, were selfish and interned hearts. But what happens when the Holy Spirit comes is he removes the heart of stone, places inside of you a heart of flesh. Martin Lloyd-Jones says you can receive a new disposition and that new disposition is a disposition of love, to love God supremely and to love others. And that's what's happened to these jokers. It says that all has fallen over them. They're in awe of the fact that the son of God has come and lived a life that they could not live and died the death that they deserved and been resurrected from the dead, ascended on high. They're in absolute awe that God could possibly love them that much. And they're like, holy cow, They're in awe because they felt spiritually abandoned and orphaned. They're they're in awe because they were separated by language and by barriers. And some of them probably were even separated by by religions. Now all of a sudden there is this declaration that they're all and they're in one and God loves them and and he's died for them. He's been resurrected from the dead and they're in awe of that. They're in absolute awe of that. May we be in awe of that. Number two, they were devoted to be learners. They had a devotion to gospel preaching and doctrinal apostolic teaching. That's not two different things, but I, apostolic, you would go, what? So doctrinal teaching. I mean, Peter, as he preaches this sermon, he's putting on a clinic on how to preach the gospel. Like, man, oh man, this mug just laying it down, preaching the gospel. Notice, first of all, that Peter's sermon is biblical. He's appealing to, he's using, he's preaching from Joel, the second chapter, from Psalm 16 and from Psalm 101. It's the Old Testament that is forming the background, the backbone, I guess I should say, the railroad tracks of the very sermon itself. Notice that Peter uses scripture in order to interpret their experience rather than his experience to interpret scripture. So they've just had this experience, the coming of the Holy Spirit. They're like, what the heck is going on? But what Peter does is he appeals to scripture. He's like, wait a minute, remember, remember when we were in school together, you know, as little boys and we had to study the, the Old Testament. We had to memorize that. You remember what the prophet Joel said in Joel chapter two, when the, the prophet said this and he reads that? You remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 16 and 19? And what he's doing is he's using scripture in order to interpret his experience. Peter has a high view of scripture. He uses scripture in order to shape his understanding of the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus, That Peter's not preaching about a God that is up to the imagination that's just in Peter's head or in Peter's mind. But what Peter is doing is he's going back into the Bible and he's seeing how God has manifested and how God has taught himself Throughout, throughout the scriptures about the person and the work of Jesus. Not only is the sermon biblical, but the sermon is Christ-centered. I love it. He starts with the sovereignty of God. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. 
uh, that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, Jesus, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. We're saying he's, hey, Jesus's death wasn't an accident. Jesus's death wasn't just coming at the hands of lawless men, but we'll get there. But this is God's plan. This is God's foreknowledge happening here. He points to the sovereignty of God, the divinity of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the responsibility of man. You did it. You crucified him. You killed him by the hands of lawless men, just like yourself. You're responsible. Jesus's blood is upon all of our hands. If we weren't sinners, Jesus wouldn't need to die. Then he doesn't just leave it there though, but he points to the resurrection of Jesus. God has raised him up. He's loosened the pangs of death because it was impossible for Jesus, the son of God, to be held by it. He points to the victory and the exaltation of Jesus. This Jesus God has raised up and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out that uh, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Then he calls for a response of the people. Notice the, the people get there before Peter gets there. Verse number 37, and when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is convicting the heart. The Spirit is doing surgery on the hearts of men and women as the gospel is being preached and as the gospel is being proclaimed. And they cried out to Peter, and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Oh, Jesus, that you would do that. Would you call a crisis in our hearts and in our lives when we understand rightly the gospel that we would cry out to you, what must we do? We've killed the son of God, what must we do? This is us. And Peter replies with the application and a response to the gospel. Here's how you respond to the gospel. You repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. And notice it's the Spirit. The Spirit uses the proclamation of the gospel to collect and to gather the church. But not only are they devoted to gospel preaching, they're also devoted to doctrinal or apostolic teaching. It just doesn't stop with this one sermon in Acts chapter two. But then notice as the 3,000 are saved and they're put into small groups as they're meeting together, they, the people, they, the church in Jerusalem, they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They're not getting together and going, hey, who's got a word for us? Who's got a vision for us? Who's got a fresh you know, revelation of God's word for us? No, no, no. What they're devoting themselves to is they're devoting themselves to the, uh, to the authority of the apostles, they already have this understanding that these men have been with Jesus and Jesus has empowered them for the teaching. So this doesn't mean me. I'm not an apostle. There were 12 apostles. They're all dead. The last one was John, uh, John the Revelator, not John the Baptist. He wasn't an apostle, but John, the one who writes uh, the gospel of John and first and second and third John and Revelation. And when he died, all the apostles died. I know there may be some joker, you're flipping channels. You abs accidentally get on Twisting the Bible Nightly, which is TBN, and you stop there and there's some joker that may have the title of an apostle, but he's not an apostle. You know why? Because he hadn't seen Jesus face to face and spent time with Jesus. But what the apostles teaching, what they left us is they left us the New Testament. So when we say that we're devoted as learners, 
What are we devoted to? We're devoted to the Bible because this is the word of authority. I'm not the word of authority. I'm just a mailman. I'm just delivering the mail, right? Like some of you need to realize that. Stop emailing me. If you got a problem with it, take it up with the author. I'm just delivering the mail. That's my job, right? Don't scream at the mailman for bringing you the bills, right? Don't scream at him. That's not his problem. He didn't do that. He's just delivering the mail. That's the same thing my job is. Our job as the elders of the church is to rightly divide God's word and to preach and to teach and to not shrink back and sharing with you, as the apostle Paul says of the church of Ephesus, the whole counsel of God. We're not just here to tell you flattering stories. We're not here just to build you up and how good you are because the honest truth is you're not really all that good. Our job is to make Jesus known and to preach and to teach Christ. As Paul said, I come to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. And why was Christ crucified? For sinners like us. Oh, but that we would believe that. Oh, that we would respond to that truth. Sometimes people go, oh, teach us something new. Teach us something better. What do you need? What better news is there than the gospel of Jesus Christ? What better word could we have than Christ? Every week we could just come together and preach Acts chapter two, Peter's sermon. You just come together and teach that, preach that again. And they go, hey, you know what? I bet you this week you haven't lived in congruence to that. Now go and do that, right? There's been times this week when you haven't loved God sufficiently. You haven't loved God with all your heart, mind, and soul. You haven't loved your neighbor as yourself. I bet that's true about you. So let's try again next week by the power of the Spirit. Let's go get them, right? We could do that every week because that is the reality. They devoted themselves to gospel preaching and to doctrinal teaching. The same thing is true here. We center ourselves around the Word of God. That's my greatest concern and my greatest burden for this church, the Point Community Church in this time is that we're are so busy and we're so distracted and we're so divided in our attention, not necessarily by bad things, but by good things that we're not centering ourselves around God's word. We need it. It's our very breath. Lastly, they were empowered to be missionaries. That's what Jesus promised. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit and then guess what? Here's what I, you're going to be my witnesses. That's missionaries. You're going to be my witnesses to Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, to the very ends of the earth that by their union as a family and their devotion to the gospel, they made Jesus unignorable in Jerusalem. Folks couldn't just keep living their lives the way they were living. They made Jesus look so beautiful and so majestic and so wonderful and so powerful. How? By their devotion to one another by their love that they're sharing, by their preaching and proclamation of the gospel that all of Jerusalem is rocked. Acts chapter two, verses 47. May it be said of us, as we make Jesus unignorable in Frankfurt, they were praising God, they were having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. May it be true of us every day, Day by day, may we be praising you. May we be enjoying the season of favor forever, how long it may be. It may be waning, but yet we also know, God, by your sovereign power, that you're still at work. Even when a world may reject us as Christians, even when a world may ridicule us, even when a world may not believe, yet we know that you're at work in times such as these. And may we do our job 
May we love you and worship you well. May we love each other. May we show genuine deference and humility. May we be gentle with one another. May we be kind with one another. May we be loving to each other. May we be full of patience with one another. May we bear with one another in love. May we do all that we can do to maintain the bond of peace that the Spirit has brought in our hearts and lives. And would you use that, Jesus? May we proclaim the gospel loudly, more loudly on our social media. May we proclaim the gospel and the truths of Scripture more loudly than anything else on our Facebook pages and our Twitter profiles and all of those other places. And would you use that? Would you harness that by the power of your spirit for the saving of souls? Would you add to our number day by day those who are being saved for your glory, Jesus? We pray that. We ask that. Amen and amen.